This episode of the Folklore Podcast Book Club is an audio version of an episode originally made for YouTube. To see the original with any pictorial references, please visit www.youtube.com slash folklore podcast and click on the book club playlist. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Folklore Podcast Book Club. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. On today's episode of the Book Club, we're going to be discussing the title Introducing the Medieval Dragon, published by University of Wales Press and written by Thomas Honegger. The book explores the characteristics of the medieval dragon and discusses the sometimes differing views found in the relevant medieval text types. It's based on an intimate knowledge of the primary texts by the author, and it presents new interpretations of well-known literary works, and also takes into consideration paintings and other depictions of dragons. Thomas Honegger is Professor for English Medieval Studies at the Friedrich Schiller University in Germany, and has published on animals, medieval romance, and the work of J.R.R. Tolkien. Guest reviewer Hilary Wilson spoke to Professor Honegger about this book. So thank you very much for coming on to this podcast today, Dr. Honegger. Today we'll be talking about your new book, Introducing the Medieval Dragon, published by the University of Wales Press. This is a very exciting book, the flagship title, in fact, for the new series on medieval animals. Before we begin, however, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what first got you interested in the subject of dragons? Well, I'm a Swiss, as they always tell me out here. Um, I ended up in Germany. And um, so, you know, you can't get really rid of your Swiss accent, which, yeah, that's the way it is. Uh, but I've become a naturalized German because I've been at the University of Vienna for the last 21 years. And um, I got interested in dragons because they were always present in um, the stories and legends I read when I was a little toddler, well, not toddler, but when I was you know, kind of something like seven or eight years old, I think I started on um, some kind of simplified retellings of the classical legends, but also mm-hmm. of the old um, knightly tales and of course uh, you have your dragon here and there (laughs) so um, I I kind of uh, had an interest um, in dragons uh, right from the start I mean they were part of my you could say imaginary setup Um, I was yeah I was a bit disappointed to find out they don't really exist but yeah (laughs) there you go part of your disenchantment with the reality well, according to uh, some of the stories of origins, they might actually have existed. <laughs> True. There's still hope, yeah. <laughs> uh, and whether or not they existed, it seems like they do have a certain legend associated with places, you know, yeah. so that they do become you know, part of the cultural landscape, whether you'd like them to or not. Indeed. And the interesting thing is that some of those motives, they, they seem to travel across cultures and they become adapted. I mean, there's one story about someone called Winkelried, not, not the famous Winkelried that everybody knows about, but mm-hmm. another Winkelried 
um, who kills a dragon, uh, but is poisoned by the by the blood that kind of uh, gets in touch with him. So obviously, dragon po- dragon blood is very very poisonous. Mm-hmm. And um, similar stories about um, the hero uh, who kills a dragon being poisoned. I mean, you can look at Beowulf. How does he die? <laughs> poisoned by the dragon. How do other um, kind of also folk more or more kind of uh, legendary heroes die? Mostly um, kind of poisoned by the dragon blood, not so much eaten up by the dragon, but poisoned. So you have these motifs that um, are taken up and uh, that are transported over thousands of miles and adapted and retold. And uh, I found this fascinating. One of the things that I was thinking about when reading your book you know, has to do with that sort of transportation of myth. Um, it wasn't something that you delved into too deeply, but you were talking about the Chinese dragon, you know, getting transported, you know, to other um, countries, you know, particularly through the vestments that were being worn um, with the Chinese dragon on them in the Alps. True. And I was thinking about how in a lot of, you know, modern dragon stories, that idea of the wisdom of the dragon you know, has kind of transported a little bit of mixing with the Eastern um, mythology with the Western. Do you think that that's more of a product of globalization? Or do you think that that's something that we do start to see earlier on, um, you know, with Smaug and, Mm -hmm. you know, that becoming more of the Western motif? The problem is, of course, as long as you have the dominance of Christianity and its symbolism, Mm -hmm. it's very, very hard to kind of recoin the symbolism of the dragon. The dragon is closely associated with the devil. And so yeah. to have something like a, yeah, a positive image to the dragon. I mean, you do get it sometimes in Christianity. The lion, for example, is ambiguous because mm-hmm. in the Bible um, you have um, Christ, uh, the lion of Judah. So it's very positively connotated, but also um, I, in one of his letters, I think St. Peter says, um, the devil is like a roaring lion prowling the <laughs> night devouring your soul. And so um, you have this ambiguity in there, but with the dragon, you don't have an ambiguity in the Christian context. It's definitely the bad guy, the big bad beast. And so it, I think it takes um, two components, a kind of a secularization, a moving Mm -hmm. away from Christianity and the globalization to come into contact with other traditions like the Asian tradition where the dragon is mostly positive. Yeah, the wise dragon. Indeed. But the wise dragon could also just be, you know, lucky having the tongue located near the liver so that it can <laughs> you know, trick you. Indeed. Uh, I mean, there is that there are some dragons, uh, kind of, I would say, on the interface between East and West. Mm-hmm. That really, I, I, still hope one day to really kind of research that. There is a story about. Harald Hardrada, a historical person, mm-hmm. and um, he was a king of Norway, and um, he at one time uh, was serving uh, with the Varangian guards, the Viking guards in Byzantium. Okay. And the story goes about that, that there he kind of um, uncovered um, a, a were dragon, someone, a dragon who transforms into a man Oh, and goes to visit the wife of one of the guards, and um, this guard complains, and um, uh, Harald uh, is able to trick him so that he reveals his true identity, 
and then finds the dragon's dragon lair and they smoke the dragon out. So it's, you know, the, the idea that you have a dragon turning into a man, mm -hmm. this is really Asian. Yeah. Really not, you have the other way around. You have man turning into something else. That's a, a Western, you know, with werewolves, werebears, yeah. uh, dragons. We, we know that. But the other way around, that's really weird. And so um, I was wondering, is this kind of an Eastern influence? Because Byzantium, of course, would be uh, a melting pot, so to speak, where you have Western and Eastern influences coming together. Yeah, that's incredibly interesting. I was thinking of that as well um, with what you mentioned in the book before, mm -hmm. um, the idea of femininity being represented, you know, the two various sides of it with the bestial primal dragon and mm -hmm. the virginal woman mm -hmm. and how later that idea was played upon um, by Ursula K. Le Guin in Earthsea, you mm -hmm. know, with the idea of women being the origin of dragons. But the mm -hmm. idea of the dragon actually being, being able to turn into the person is, you know, quite the inversion of that. <laughs> it is, it is. I mean, it's really kind of, um, yeah. I mean, Ursula Kalawina would be a good, very good example of someone who um, uh, makes a dragon a, a positive figure, being a oh, wife yeah. and all that. So she is someone who um, takes the Eastern tradition and reshapes it and gives us a kind of a new interpretation of it. I mean, I appreciate her books very much also for that, apart from being great literature. <laughs> yes, especially the uh, later books in the series that came out more in the 2000s, because mm -hmm. originally the dragons were more of a questionable figure. Yeah, yeah. But the inversion of that would be uh, what J.R.R. What, uh, Martin did. Or... <laughs> yes. <laughs> that turned into much more of a... Uh, typical dragon story they, they are yes indeed and uh, he also as, as usual he kind of subverts things they don't eat their princess you know suddenly the dragon uh, the, the princess is the mother of the dragons and stuff like that um, and she very much becomes the dragon at least in the television yeah. show indeed uh, very much so that's uh, her dragon nature so to speak uh, takes over yeah, I have to say, as much as I uh, was torn by the ending of it, I appreciated a lot more after reading your book and <laughs> realizing more of the tropes that were being played with. Yeah, it yeah. Um, reframed things quite nicely. <laughs> well, one of these days, I hope to um, write a book about um, George Martin's work. Uh, I've made a start in 2017, but... Oh, that's fantastic. If you're, if you're head of department and, um, yeah, and that everything else, uh, you're kept busy with a lot of other stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I would definitely be interested in hearing your take on um, some of his, you know, other dragon stories apart from just the, you know, main A Song of Ice and Fire books, like the myth of the ice dragon. Yeah, indeed. He did um, I thought that that was a very interesting, yeah. you know, again, bit of a subversion of it. Yeah. And, you know, the whole question again of people turning into dragons in his books and whether or not that is something that could happen mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but I found that very interesting I uh, dragons I mean uh, you expect dragons in fantasy so yeah. George Martin having dragons um, here and there but he's of course very careful not to um, kind of overdo it I mean that uh, I also appreciate that um, 
for example, when you look at um, Ishiguro, I mean, mm -hmm. uh, Nobel Prize winner for literature. Oh, yeah. Is, I think it's in the most recent book, The Buried Giant. There you have a dragon. And this obviously irritated some of the critics to no end. So they asked me, why are you writing fantasy? And Ishiguro in turn was ir irritated and said, why? I, you know, just putting a dragon in a book doesn't turn it into a fantasy. Uh, so I find, the, well, not, it's not, it, to some extent in Ishiguro, it's a symbol for something, but at the same time, it's a very real dragon too. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting where you were talking about how the dragon was able to turn into more than simply, you know, either a real beast or an allegory, but becoming a mixture of the two, you know, as well as still being emblematic to a good degree of place. Mm -hmm. You know, I, you know, I think that a lot of the dragon, you know, literature that, you know, I've been seeing lately, um, going beyond, you know, just being present in fantasy books, you know, has been focused a bit too much on the biological aspects of the dragon mm -hmm. and, you know, how we could potentially bring it to life. Um, oh. There was a, I think it was actually either History Channel or Animal Planet documentary about that. <laughs> um, you know, a couple of years ago. Um, but I think there's been a little bit too much focus on that rather than, you know, how the dragon continues to live in our mind. Mm -hmm. you, know, you know, how we've kind of been poisoned by it so that it exists forever as an archetype, you know, whether we want to mm -hmm. or want it to or not. You know, I, do you think that there are some, you know, good examples of the dragon being used in that way um, nowadays? you know, as opposed to, you know, simply the medieval um, texts such as Beowulf that, you know, are more emblematic of it from that time. You mean now, um, in our time being used um, symbolically or, um, or misused um, or? More used well, uh, symbolically, rather than, you know, simply trying to create a biological dragon. Ah, okay, yeah. I mean, um, probably the, I'm sorry, the audience probably don't know that, but there is by Michael Ende, Michael Ende, mm -hmm. he's a German author, and he wrote, they know maybe that, the uh, never-ending story. It was also turned into a movie. There you have um, also a, um, a dragon, a Chinese luck dragon. Mm -hmm. But for uh, dragons, a very interesting uh, piece is actually one of his children's stories um, about a train driver and his kind of companion. And they also have to do with dragons. And there, the evil dragon, um, which has a very speaking name uh, in German, when she goes to the east then, then she kind of like the, uh, she transforms into a golden dragon and becomes wise and good. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's really cool. So he, he, he unites these two traditions and um, uh, by simply kind of sending her or she ending up in the east then uh, makes this transformation. That's, I found it very uh, fascinating. That's really cool. So it's, Almost like she crosses over from one cultural idea to Indeed. another. Yeah, yeah. That's so fantastic. That, I find it very nice that he puts it into a children's story so that the yeah. children 
Um, it, I think he wrote in the 70s or 80s uh, back then. So they're familiar with both. Um, they think, <laughs> okay, yeah, there are good dragons and there are bad dragons. Really. Uh, how do you think we came about in children's books the idea of the cuddly dragon? That's really absolutely weird. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I, so... it's maybe, it has maybe to do with Disney that you kind of make almost everything or anything, uh, you subvert it uh, and make it into something harmless. Of course, um, I mean, um, Kenneth Graham's The uh, Reluctant Dragon mm -hmm. is at the heart of it. So I think it's 1898 or something like that that he wrote this story. And he's still, uh, the story is fun because back then in the 19th century, the dragon definitely was the evil one or still mm -hmm. very much a symbol against which St. George, the national saint of the <laughs> national patron of England fights. So as an English woman and as an English mayor, as a child growing up in England, you would be very much familiar that the dragon is evil and uh, St. George, the patron, um, defeats this evil. And now comes this little story which uh, tells about a dragon who somehow has overslept. He's the only <laughs> dragon still around and uh, time has moved on and um, he's rather peaceful dragon. He's more like a hobbit. He likes, you know, his meal <laughs> regular. He likes his tea. He writes epic poetry and he doesn't, of course, want to fight knights, something like that. And so um, Kenneth Graham's story um, is funny because it gives us a dragon that is very, very undragonish. Mm -hmm. It's everything that a dragon shouldn't be. <laughs> and I think from then onwards, we have this idea and it kind of takes off and you find then suddenly the dragon in advertisement and stuff like that. Uh, it's really in places uh, you think, how did we end up there? Of course, yeah. then another element um, is that we have a fascination with dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. And dinosaurs, you have the whole variety. And you have the originally the bad guys like T-Rex, T-Rex kind of um, step into the footsteps, you could say, yeah. the bad dragons. But then, of course, you have the, 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 the ones who eat just plants and who are kind of, they are big, yes, but basically they're harmless. And um, so with the dinosaurs, you have these two elements there too. And I think that might be uh, that some of the dragons, interpretation of the dragon, end up on the cuddly side of the dinosaurs, so to speak. Yeah, and new pattern maybe and you also end up with something really interesting like the good guy godzilla you know fighting against the you know bad it, king Ghidorah. indeed, indeed. <laughs> so you have this this switch indeed originally the the bad uh, kind of and godzilla of course originally or is presented as a dinosaur mm -hmm. but then this dinosaur suddenly starts to breathe fire, which yes. <laughs> didn't really do, you know, kind of, uh, so. Yeah, and, you know, then you end up with the, you know, big bad being King Ghidorah, you know, a multi-headed dragon, yeah. which is just a lot of interesting tropes being played <laughs> on with that. And I mean, this kind of um, switch from the big bad beast to suddenly the good guy, also happens to King Kong. True. You know, when uh, and I mean, there you also have the the woman, the virgin, 
to protect. You know, first of all, they offer um, the white woman to King Kong. Mm-hmm. He takes her, so he's the big bad beast. But then comes a T-Rex, a dinosaur, yes. <laughs> or a dragon. And so they fight for the woman. And in some of the, I mean, yeah, I'm talking about the black and white, 1938, mm-hmm. something like King Kong. Yeah. Um, there you see um, the white woman is placed on um, on a tree. She looks down on King Kong fighting the T-Rex. And King Kong takes, uh, it's not a stick, it's more than a stick, almost a, tr- a young tree, and kind of rams it down um, the, the throat, I think, of the T-Rex. And iconographically speaking, this is the very same structure you find in medieval depictions of St. George killing the dragon. You have St. George with a stick, aka a lane, a lance. Yeah. Um, uh, kind of defeating the dragon, meaning the dinosaur, and you have the virgin up there some on, on a hilltop looking down. And so, you know, dragons occur sometimes in places you don't expect them to occur. Sometimes uh, in contexts you, you don't really also, you, you think, wait a moment, uh, how did this happen? Yeah, that's fantastic. You know, that was one of the things that I you know, liked most about you know, mm-hmm. reading the book was how much of it still you know, resonates today and how many yeah. you know, fascinating parallels there are to be found. Um, one thing that I was you know, curious about was the section on you know, particularly the dragon and folklore. Mm-hmm. You mentioned just how little dragon folklore there is, you know, how we know that this idea persisted, you know, throughout the Middle Ages, but how most of the time now, you know, trying to find any sort of origin story is just trying to figure out what doesn't quite fit, you know, what might have changed over time. Yeah. I mean, I was, was, indeed, that's a very important point, because um, when I submitted the outline of this book, I said, Mm -hmm. okay, I'll write a chapter on dragon and religion, dragon and um, uh, medieval uh, romance, dragon in folklore. And then uh, when I actually came to writing it, I found out there isn't, I mean, there is very, very little to Mm -hmm. almost no no records about medieval folklore, proper medieval folklore. What you find, of course, is later, and they tell you, well, it's medieval sources. No, they're not. (laughs) They, They want you to believe. Uh, that uh, their version goes back to the Middle Ages, but um, they don't. And so, um, yeah, so I was stuck a bit, and uh, I simply had to turn it around and set the medieval dragon in folklore. Yeah. Because I cannot pretend that there is something like medieval folklore about the dragon. What we have, of course, um, you pointed out uh, that before, we do have pictures, paintings, uh, murals, depictions of the dragon in general. And they, of course, um, they remain as the focal points where new stories are created or where other stories come and attach themselves to, the, to this dragon figure. So if you have a, a dragon, a picture of a dragon uh, on a wall of a church, that will auto, almost automatically create um, stories. Oh, definitely. And so... Uh, 
do you think that the you know dragon you know in folklore might not exist as much in you know written records because those stories were primarily transmitted orally and might have had um, more pre-Christian uh, origins? Of course, as soon as they would um, enter, let's say, the, the written dimension, the written sphere, mm-hmm. it would be probably reinterpreted by the clergy. I mean, basically, those who were writing things down, they were trained men, trained as clergy. And so they also had the Christian mindset and would almost automatically interprets any dragon that comes along as a symbol um, of the devil or of Satan. And so um, all those uh, other stories that were transmitted orally that might find expression in um, those local legends and ballads that we then later on still have from the 17th century. Yes, you simply have to assume that uh, we do have a long tradition of oral uh, transmission. But of course, it's always difficult to yeah, to track it down. I believe it was uh, Neil Gaiman who was very adamant that the dragon in Beowulf was meant to be symbol- symbolizing the death of the heroic age and the dominance of the church, mm-hmm. which was made a bit more uh, overt in the rather interesting film <laughs> um, that he contributed to on the uh, matter. Uh, uh. Uh, do you agree with that interpretation of uh, the Beowulf dragon? <laughs> uh, I mean, of course, you can, uh, again, I mean, the Be- Beowulf is, uh, I'm actually, I'm teaching Beowulf this term. <laughs> oh, fantastic. <laughs> yeah, fantastic indeed. Um, <laughs> Beowulf, it's such an interesting piece of work because it's cobbled up, very skillfully cobbled up, of different elements. I mean, on the one hand, you have this folk tale of the bear's son. I mean, Mm -hmm. the bee wolf wolf is obviously the bear. And Beowulf is as strong as a bear. He has the strength of 30 men in one of his hands. And um, so you could say, okay, the first half, his adventure, the fight against these monsters, Grendel and Grendel's mom, um, is basically the story, the bear's son. And then you have And the second part um, is the dragon fight story. It's also a very kind of, you could almost say an archetypal uh, sort of tale. And whether you want to interpret it that way, um, maybe the Beowulf poet who was a Christian and who wrote it, we don't really, it's debated whether he wrote it in the ninth century or the 10th century uh, or as late as the early 11th century, we don't know. Maybe you could argue uh, if he wrote it that late, he was looking back onto a, what he would felt a lost heroic age. And so it's a kind of a, yes, say um, an elegy. We, are, we don't, don't no longer have these heroes. They, they died basically with um, Beowulf and the dragon. Yeah, it is a very beautiful ending and there is a certain bittersweet element to it that I've definitely um, gotten in some of the translations that I've read. Um, Seamus Haney's immediately comes to mind. True. Another Nobel Prize winner. Yeah. uh, This is a dragon all hidden somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Nobel Prize winners, yes. Uh, Maybe that's a prerequisite to get it. You have to have a dragon somewhere. 
Yeah, not too obviously, though. <laughs> <laughs> not too obviously. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, um, we, we talk now about high literature, but um, dragons are, of course, also part of what I would call maybe popular tradition. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, I'm a great fan of um, what I could call medieval movies. Well, movies that, you know, pretend to take up a motive from the Middle Ages, they adapt it. Um, and there was this, I think, 2002 movie, The Reign of Fire. Yes, about, I remember that one. Remember that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all about dragons. And you could think, okay, um, basically the world is taken over uh, by dragons. They burn everything to ash and eat the ash. No comment on that. Yes, of course. Yeah, that's what they do. <laughs> and you would think, okay, um, there are a few humans left. And now, um, how does, where, where does the movie go from there? I mean, um, the Americans come, they have still a tank, they have a helicopter, they have weapons. Are we getting something like a dragon splatter movie where they have to kill about a thousand dragons in the remaining 30 minutes? No, the solution is actually ingenious. And that's why I really like the movie. They bring it down with a little biological trick, which is very flimsy. They say, okay, the, all the dragons are female, but one. There is only ah. one male dragon and he's in London. If we get this one male dragon, we just have to wait and the sort of problem is solved, solves itself. And so instead of uh, becoming a splatter movie, killing hundreds or thousands of dragons, it again boils down to basically one man against one dragon with a crossbow. Of course. And, and you have the, um, Alex, the, the helicopter pilot, uh, beautiful blonde woman running around and being kind of the virgin that has to be saved. Yes. You, you see, you, you, you go back to the very kind of basic archetypal structures. Even in a 2002 kind of B-class movie, you think, okay, where are we heading to? They end up with the very same uh, kind of patterns again. Yeah, it's something that seems almost biological to us. You know, these stories yeah. that just speak to us across the ages no matter how much we might try to escape them indeed yeah to some yeah. Extent, uh, we always seem to come back consciously or unconsciously and i mean by now there's so much of that much of, of that pattern in our culture i mean you 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 don't have to go back to beowulf or you don't have to go back to the greek myths it's in the movies it's in the comics it's in the graphic novels it's it's everywhere and so you just suck it in. And I find it um, fascinating then to dissect that and to try to trace them down. Um, how, how did this come about? I mean, most of my students, they know about um, medieval animals, you know, kind of unicorns, um, basilisks and all that. They know it from Harry Potter. Yes. They don't know it from the medieval bestiaries. No, yeah. but it's- Harry okay. Potter was interesting in, how it treated dragons. Um, the you know, first book definitely did have the dragon as a bit of a stumbling block, yeah, where um, he has the dragon egg. And yeah. you know, that was a little bit of a, you know, an obstacle for him to pass, not the you know, final obstacle, but it did sort of you know, position him in an interesting place. Mm -hmm. you know, do you surrender the dragon? Do you keep the dragon? Mm -hmm. 
but then um, I think it was the fourth book with the Goblet of Fire, where he has to actually fly around the dragons to defeat them. Um, I her dragons are interesting because the phenotypes she explains as being regional variants, mm-hmm. you know, as opposed to um, Dungeons and Dragons, which attempts to cross the linguistic barrier of we have all of these words for dragons and they all mean effectively the same thing. Mm -hmm. But let's now say that these words mean specific phenotypes. Mm -hmm. Um, It was pretty uh, surprising to me that those kinds of variants, um, you know, of like, it is the wyvern that has the, Mm -hmm. you know, all four legs as well as the, um, wings, if I'm not mistaken, you know that is entirely D- Dungeons and Dragons that determined that, from mm-hmm. what I can tell. Indeed, because in traditional parlance, uh, you would say the Wyvern has two legs and two wings, mm-hmm. so it would make biologically more sense. A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, having having kind of two wings and four legs. Biologically speaking, we are no longer talking mammals or whatever, or you know, kind of vertical. Yeah, yeah. It, it is a little bit of a merging, but it is, yeah. For some reason, the you know idea of the you know dragon origins coming from an amalgamation of all the things that humans feared that never quite made sense to me, yeah. um, because there are so many you know phenotypical differences that don't really line up with the animals that would have existed there. Yeah. You would have expected the um, you know Asian dragons in particular to be a bit more uh, you know similar to the Western ones. That, that's also interesting. Uh, I mean, uh, you have a wide variety of um, phenotypes in the West, I would say, in mm-hmm. the West tradition. You mentioned the wyvern, and then we have, I mean, even the basilisk is categorized as a, as a dragon. Well, okay. Um, but the East is very, very stable. Um, basically, at least looking from the outside, um, that the Eastern dragon, I think, has been in its shape for at least 2,000 years. But they also seem to retain the... Um more aquatic origins yeah. and symbolism of the dragon better than the Westerns, um, yeah. you know, dragons have. Yeah. I think that, you know, largely in the West, at least in more popular culture, we've kind of lost them as symbols of rivers, mm-hmm. um, which I, you know, find interesting because we definitely do have, you know, plenty of water, you know, particularly around England, but, you know, that hasn't exactly, you know, held true over the years. <laughs> Would you, would you um, kind of argue that uh, Loch Ness, Nessie, is kind of a remnant of that? Or It's interesting um, because the myth of Nessie does actually have you know, fairly ancient origins. Mm-hmm. You know, there definitely was something um, before the famous doctor's photo of mm-hmm. the later proven to be toy submarine okay. <laughs> um, of her. Yeah, so there is, I, if what I recall correctly, um, she was more of a hippogriff Mm -hmm. in origin, more of a water horse, Um, you know, kind of going back into more traditional, you know, Mm -hmm. Scottish uh, folklore. Mm -hmm. But over time, you know, as more movies came out, like Land of the Lost, Mm -hmm. 
then she gained her more plesiosaurus identity mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is pretty darn delightful <laughs> and pretty fun yeah. but doesn't exactly you know hold as much water as perhaps you know the original yeah. idea does I, I i do think though that there is a very strong um a very strong correlation between dragons and sea monsters mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned in the book that you know, some of the language used was the same over the years, mm-hmm. or at least was very closely associated. Um, so I do think that there is a you know, definite cultural memory there before the dragon became more of the Christian you know, devil myth, which is it cool. It might be that uh, Christianity kind of helped to crystallize the Western dragon into its peculiar form. So that we have then kind of a prototype or a dominant type. Mm-hmm. And that before, I mean, uh, you're right, I had a look at um, the sea. Well, I tried to establish what is a sea dragon like. And in Beowulf too, we have these sea monsters mentioned, Nicaras. Yes. Um, and stuff like that. But, you know, they say they translate it sometimes as sea dragons or sea monsters. Basically, we don't know what they are. They must be... Uh, monsters who live in the water that's about it and um we that that's a problem we often have terms um but we don't have pictures and we don't have definitions yeah so uh... kind of uh, on our own what what do we do with that it's somewhere in the water it's not very pleasant to meet <laughs> uh yeah what, what, what shall we call it and in in our uh, in our context that was the uh, hippocampus, not the hippogriff. I was thinking again of oh, Harry yeah. Potter. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. Yes, yeah, the, the water horse that oh. can't be rode, which, yeah. you know, again, has some nice, you know, correlations with the primal creature, you know, mm-hmm. this pure symbol of nature that can't be tamed no matter how hard you try. Yeah. You know, it looks alluring, but you get on the back and then you're stuck there. <laughs> okay. I mean, uh, with this idea that you have the hippogriff in the air, you have the hippocampus in the water, and you, of course you have the horse. Yeah. Um, I mean, you could say a pegasus as the winged horse, a kind of a hippogriff. Um, I mean, this is a, a very kind of traditional idea that you have um, a, a kind of a representative of each species in the water, on earth, and in the air. And so the same uh, logic applies for the dragons. You have the dragons in the air. You have the dragons that are more kind of like the lindworms mm-hmm. without wings that are more kind of earthbound. They live in caves. And that you, of course, have also the water dragons. And medieval um, encyclopedias, um, they would take this categorization from Isidore of Seville. Uh, but they often were too lazy to have new footprints, you know, new pictures for <laughs> that categories. So they would simply take, oh, we have a dragon. Okay, it's now the water dragon, but we don't care. We'd simply take the same picture we used for the dragon who lives in the, on, out of the water and just put it in there again. Our kind of uh, readers will make the mental adjustments necessary. Yeah, that's well, all. I think... I think that we have, to some extent, made those mental adjustments. Indeed, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, they, they've lasted so long. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I wanted to ask you uh, one more thing, which, you know, you mentioned that the you know, earliest, um, I believe, in the English maxims, 
you mention of the dragon, you yeah. mentions them in the barrow, you know, with their horde. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if you go back, you know, that far and say that this is the, you know, original idea of what a dragon is, it's a creature in the barrow, you know, with the horde, you know, what do you think that, you know, symbolically that might have originally meant? Like if we, you know, if we look at the dragon at the most stripped down that we possibly can, yeah. you know, why do you think that held on to our consciousness? I think it might be a tonic force, a representation of tonic force, um, mm -hmm. earth power, and actually, you know, kind of protecting the, the treasure that is in the earth, the gold, the silver, the precious things that are there. And, um, but already in Beowulf, um, it becomes then the counter symbol of the good king. So the good oh. king, what he does do is he gives out his treasure. You know, he doesn't sit on it, but on the opposite, he amasses treasure through his um, raids, through wars. That's mm -hmm. why most of the Germanic tribes were kind of at war with each other because they were trying to get each other treasure and the king would kind of give out the treasure and the dragon does exactly the same, uh, the opposite. It sits on it and doesn't do anything with it. And it's lonely, you know, the dragon yeah. all the cave, it's only a dragon. Traditionally, the Germanic King's Hall, it's full of people, full of his warriors, full of noise, Gold is circulating, so it's a kind of that a counter thing. Yeah, yeah that's really interesting, and that's also a, a fun bit of foil because even Grendel had a mom, <laughs> but the dragon is still all alone. <laughs> but talking of another monster, I mean Fafnir or Fafnir, in uh, well the Vilsunga saga, wherever you get him, in the Norse tradition, I mean uh, being originally a man or a dwarf, whatever, and then turning into a dragon because of the greed uh, for the treasure. And so this yeah. really kind of the, the dragon becomes the embodiment of this greed, this possessiveness uh, that takes over a human being. Yeah, the and worst possible thing that could happen to a communal culture. Indeed, yeah. And that's very much so. And I mean, C.S. Lewis took it up in his, um, one of his Chronicles of Narnia books. Uh, Eustace, I think, um, he's also a greedy boy, and um, on the island, um, he also is turned into a dragon because of his greed. So again, this is uh, C.S. Lewis, who of course knew his medieval literature. Oh, definitely. He put it in there in the children's book, and uh, I don't know for how million children now they think <laughs> dragons about greed. Yeah, so that's... Yeah, that's really powerful. It is, yeah. Uh, so I don't want to keep you for too long. Oh, so, you know, finally, what do you want people to most take away, you know, from your book on dragons? I think to have an open mind and uh, look around themselves, whether they are sitting in the cinema or, um, <laughs> you know, kind of out in a theme park or so, whenever they encounter a dragon or a dinosaur or something dragon like or that functions like a dragon to kind of uh, be curious about it and start investigating and start why is this so and um, uh, wh what is the story behind it i think if as soon as you you have if you keep this open inquisitive mind um, you will have a, 
I think something like a richer intellectual life because you can participate in your tradition, in your culture better. You also get to know other cultures, of course, that's uh, very interesting, but uh, it will lead you to new dimensions. Um, probably you wouldn't have thought about it yet. And I find this a really kind of always, it's like a quest a bit, a never ending quest. I think that the never ending quests are often the best ones. <laughs> true, true. You know, if I may uh, conclude with uh, one final example from a movie. Of course. Uh, most of, I'm not quite sure whether the younger members of the audience uh, still watch it, but probably do, um, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> yes. Of course. I think it's one of the best uh, kind of medieval movies, if we want to call it like that. And there you have a moment when you think now we need a dragon. Oh, yes. Him, the sorcerer, brings them to the, you know, to the cave and he says, do you see the monster? And all there is is a little bunny. Yes. A rabbit. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not quite sure whether Monty Python, I mean, they had a medievalist in their, in their group. So maybe he, he was thinking about that. What they did is actually they take this idea of the cuddliest of animals and put it in the place where you expect the most horrible of animals. But the cuddliest of animals behaves actually like the most horrible of animals, like a dragon, and kills oh, a lot fantastic. of fantastic. So I found this a very like, a great scene. So you don't have the cuddly dragon, but you have the cuddly rabbit that turns out to be as dangerous or even more dangerous than the dragon. I just oh, love that. Yeah. It is absolutely fantastic. It's definitely one of the most iconic scenes in the film, yes. too. <laughs> Killer rabbit. Yeah. yeah. Well, can we expect more work from you soon on the topic? On dragons, maybe not. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm more working at the moment a bit on uh, Game of Thrones. And probably sooner or later, of course, I will, I will deal with the dragons there. Yeah. Well, honestly, I look forward from any new work from you. I thought that your writing was fantastic and I can't wait to be able to talk to you again. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. My thanks to Professor Honegger for taking the time to discuss his book and to Hilary for writing the review and speaking to the author. You'll find the review of Introducing the Medieval Dragon on the Folklore Podcast website and the book is available from the University of Wales Press. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.